The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm very mad at Drew Barrymore. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I want to thank our lovely patrons. <laughs> wow. Hey, patrons. What's shaking? What's happening? What's moving? What's grooving? <laughs> okay, I want to talk about, I love the patrons as well, but I also want to have a little rant about Drew Barrymore. Yeah, please, please do that. Because this is the thing, is you can't like anyone. Because I was going on and on about how much I love Drew Barrymore's interview style and how she was right. like, and how she was sort of revolutionizing the interview and that it was so cool that, that her show was doing this and, and what an inspiration she was for me as an aspiring talk show host. Oh, babe. And then she's a freaking scab. Yeah, her and, and and you know what? I feel that way about Bill Maher. No, I don't. I no, never well, I hate Bill, Bill Maher. Maher. I never like Bill Maher. But yeah, so she's bringing her talk show back without her writers, which yeah. is like a clear violation of the WGA strike. Mm -hmm. And she's saying like, oh, I, it's because the crew can't be out of work. I'm sorry, Drew. Why don't you just pay the crew yourself? Like yeah. you can afford to pay the crew if that's what you're so worried about. It is so horrible. It's a horrible look. It's horrible for our union. It's just like horrible for the state of the industry. And I just like, if you had like put a gun to my head and be like, who, who was going to disappoint you the most during this strike? <laughs> it would not have been Drew Barrymore. Yeah. I think um, I'm also, for me personally, I think Jennifer Hudson's bringing back her show too. Really? Yeah. And uh, and Sherry Shepard, who I don't, I don't really have, I like Sherry Shepard, but I don't really have a connection to her. But Jennifer Hudson, I'm always rooting for Jennifer Hudson. And she's bringing her show back as well. What is like going on? Like, I just don't even understand how these people rationalize it to themselves. They must be feeling pressure from someone, crew or producer or someone who's saying, oh, these people need to work. These people, their families, whatever. Like they must be getting like bad information. That's my thought. But then like if you go online, it's like you've never seen a public fall faster than Drew Barrymore announcing that she was bringing her show back. And I think what's even more fucked up, it's like, OK, you want to do that, whatever. But then she's repressing people being mad about it. Like I saw this news that like if you people got kicked out of the taping for wearing WGA pins. Yeah. And it's like that's like that takes away any level of me being like, OK, maybe she like actually thinks she's doing something good. And there's a way to like bring the show back without like. Like, that's just like, oh, you just like you want to do what you want to do and you don't want anyone to speak out against you. Yeah. Or there's just this misinformation where they're telling her, oh, it's just some bad apples. It's just some people that are, you know, pissed and being bad eggs or whatever. You know what I mean? Like log on to Twitter. You're trending and everyone's mad at you. <laughs> I know. But also um, what? Melissa's joining. I want to also say that like a lot of people that are kind of like in middle of America they're like applauding her. I don't know if y'all looked in the comments, but a lot of people are like happy yes. about it. There are people, right? That's the thing. So like we're in a situation where we're seeing one thing, 
I'm on Reddit, which if you want to hear more about that, you can go to our show, TLDRI, Too Long Did Read It, which is on Mondays. But on Reddit, there's like, it's not a clear cut thing. Like I'm, you know, we go on Instagram, we see our friends or whatever, but like on Reddit, there's people that were responding to it saying other people have to work and crew members have to work. And like this, they can't, you know, there was like, it's not a clear cut and dry and also like people in, in that are not in entertainment, you're right, Melissa, are like, I just want my shows back. You guys are being annoying. But it's ridiculous. Like yeah. just pay your crew. She can afford to pay her crew. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm riled up. And this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Brutal, brutal honesty. <laughs> Who out of the three Charlie's Angels? Uh-huh. It's Lucy Lou, right? The best one? Yeah. I guess so at this point, yeah. She paints. Can I tell you something about Lucy Liu? She has flown under the radar, but I really enjoyed her in some in a bunch of things. But she um, paints like lesbian paintings. Really? Yeah. She's got like this side hustle where she's painting a lot of like gay paintings. And people were like, is Lucy Liu painting lesbian paintings? And like, she's like got gallery showings and stuff of her like, they're huge. Like what? I don't know when this turn happened, but it's like her side hustle. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, we've got a great episode for everyone today and an important one. Yeah, we're going to be talking to James Heatall about deep sea mining. Which is a really bad new industry that I'm so glad that we're going to help get the word out about because we have to stop it. Yeah, and thank you to our listener who wrote in about this. We really appreciate it. And later, we're going to be talking all about my first colonoscopy. So if you were like, hey, what's it like to get a colonoscopy? You'll know soon. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they were wondering what it's like to have something up your butt. And I was like, you could have just talked to me first. All right. Oh, I want to thank I want to thank our, some of our patrons. Also, thank you so much to the, the patrons that have joined. There's been so many of you. And it was like really wonderful to watch all of that come in. I just wanted to shout out five of you, if that's possible. I want to <laughs> shout out Les Cassowaries, Walter, Lucy, Mara and Kelly. Thank you to you five. And then everyone else will get to you slowly. <laughs> but before we learn all about deep sea mining and uh, all the all the butt stuff, we have <laughs> to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, the Middle East. Nice. Hello, Allison and Gabe. Disclaimer, English is not my native language, so I apologize for any mistakes I make. Congrats to Allison for her marriage. It gives me hope that I will one day find my person. I'm a woman in her late 20s from a country in the Middle East, and I come from a family with Muslim background. I've had some sort of an online relationship with a Jewish guy in another country for a while. Tight. And then we met in real life. Mm -hmm. He is in his early 20s, so I'm a bit older than him, but I never felt the age difference between us. I fell in love with him and he reciprocated the feelings. Even though everything seemed perfect, he made it clear that even though he wants to be with me, it's not possible for us to have an actual relationship because of long distance and the fact that I'm not Jewish complicates things even further. He claims to not believe in religion, but still seems to take that seriously. Also, due to age gap, we are at different parts in our lives and he doesn't know how to make it work. I understand his reasons, but I feel conflicted about his feelings for me. I'm the kind of person who thinks that if you love someone, you will do anything to be with them. So for my POV, these reasons for breakup means he's not really in love. Mm. I know that me being non-Jewish is a major problem for the future because our child wouldn't be born as a Jew and we wouldn't be able to get legally married. But I told him I was willing to move abroad and convert. 
I've always been interested in Judaism, yet he thinks that I shouldn't have to go through with that and that it would be very difficult to convert to Judaism. There's also a political barrier between us. Our countries aren't on the best terms with each other, and it makes meeting even more difficult than it should be. My question is, if someone breaks up with you for such reasons, could they have truly loved you? Or does it mean that they didn't care enough to try? Could you be in love with someone and still break up with them because of tough circumstances that are out of control? Bonus question, is it a good idea to remain close friends with your exes? Kisses to both of you. Unfortunately, I do think that you can be in love with someone and break up with them for reasons that are outside of your control. As I was reading this, I was like, what a what a cinematic situation. But the problem is, is that I think we've been taught by by society that, oh, love should conquer all and we should you know, we should be able to power through anything. And you certainly have a lot of things <laughs> on, against you, a lot. Um, whether I, I find those things to be rational or not, I think that part of what makes a relationship work is love. But the other part of it is just like compatibility to things that are outside of your control. If you, what your lifestyles are, what, where you live. I mean, it, it all, I feel like you're going to say the same thing, right? Oh, I don't think love is a factor that much at all. <laughs> like, I think that I really, you know, like, I think that love is like absolutely 100% not enough to make a relationship work. I know. And the fact that like this idea that love conquers all is so false and harmful. And I think it, it keeps people in abusive situations. And I think it is a way for people to feel like they were the problem in a situation where they weren't. Yeah. You know, that like I used to do this thing where like if someone would break up with me, it somehow meant that they never cared about me at all. And that's right. like where my brain would go. And it was like, how could they possibly break up with me and never speak to me again? That must mean they never cared ever. And the whole thing was a lie. And it was like <sighs> this huge spiral that would like ruin my mental health. Yeah. But love is just one component of what makes a long term lasting partnership work. And so. I think that like maybe this is a stage in your life where it's it's thinking about like, OK, but what what is actually viable for me? You mm -hmm. know, like if having a long term partner is something you really want, then like what Gabe was saying, it's about more than just chemistry and connection and love. It's like, how can we actually entwine our lives? Because this scenario kind of sounded like you were willing to give up your entire life for this person, move where they lived, uh, adopt Change their religion, religion yeah. all of this stuff. And and like maybe that's something that you're feeling in general, that you want to move, that you want a different culture. And if that's true, then that's great. But more often than not, it's about finding people who are compatible with your the current version of you. And sometimes, especially if you like yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so when when relationships have so much against them, like where it's such an uphill battle, where there's so many hurdles, it can feel like, oh, but if we make it through this, we can make it through anything. But like more often than not, you're just not going to make it through that. you know. Or you've romanticized the situation because it's so hard. Right. Like, I think a lot of times I've gotten stuck on bad relationships because I've romanticized how difficult everything has been mm. and thinks and think, oh, we've we've been through so much and that's why we should stay together. But it's like, do you need to really be going through that much? Like, not no. really. Here's the thing. I think for you, probably, um, you know, the way that you said it gives me hope that one day I'll find my person. I, I'm going to assume that you don't connect with people that often, like that that this guy is special to you because you feel a connection to him because it's it's kind of a rare thing. But I think you should let this show you that you have the capacity to feel this way, that you know that you can, that that you do want a partner, that you can feel this way. And that this isn't the only person that you're ever going to feel this way about. 
And like, you know, also a relationship and love does come down to day to day, right? So you're like, oh my God, it's so hard to see each other. It's so, you know, there's all these these obstacles. But like, would you feel as strongly about this person a year from now after you've sat on the couch for like a month and just watched TV? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, is the adrenaline rush like part of it? I think like this has shown you that you do want a partner, but I do think that there is like more to that than just the beginning stages of like, we must be together. And I think he's probably just a practical person. I think he does care about you. I think there is, you know, love there. But I think he's also just being more not willing to get so far into something that could end up just in hurt and um and not end up in the place that you guys want to end up in. And Allison's right. Like you are all of these sacrifices are coming from your end. And they have to do with him, you know, like if you're interested in Judaism, be interested in Judaism. But it's not like, let me change everything about myself to be with this one person. I also think something that really changed my experience of the world was just choosing to believe what people told me. Yeah, like he's telling the truth. If he told you that he loved you, then I think that you should accept that. And I think you can accept both that he loved you and that this isn't a feasible relationship. Yeah. Like both of those things can be true. And I think that like going down the path of like, he didn't love me because of this, like you're just hurting yourself unnecessarily. Yeah. But in terms of your bonus question, I would suggest not staying in contact with this person um, because I have a feeling uh, you might hold out hope in a way. Like, I don't think that it would look really like you were just friends now. I think there would always be this hope that like he'll realize what he's missing with you. Like, I think staying in touch with exes only makes sense when neither person wants to be together. (laughs) <laughs> but if bo- if one person wants to be together, you shouldn't stay in touch. Yeah, yeah. I had to learn that. Not just on my end, but on on other ends. Like I was like, why does this person not want to be my friend? And then I'm like, well, that's why. Exactly. But I was going to say this, but like, again, don't live your life to this. But like, who knows? You know, maybe in like 20 years or whatever. Like, I don't know. No, I'm not but don't, I'm taking that. I say But no. don't live your life like that. Don't, don't. I don't put that in her head. Right. Sorry. Like, don't be stuck. You know what I mean? Like, don't be stuck. Hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, James Hita. So stay tuned. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have James Hita, the seabed mining campaigner at Greenpeace Altorora. Hello, James. Kia ora. Hi. Nice to meet you. Yes. How did I? Okay. You say it correctly. Aotearoa, but you did really well. So we're so excited to have you because actually a listener sent us a fascinating email where they were like, look, you guys need to talk about this because deep sea mining is a huge issue and it feels like something your listeners would want to know about. 
And so they sent over like a few potential experts and we loved everything you had to say. And so can you sort of just like, we'll start big and then get more specific, but what is deep sea mining? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of the next gold rush, right? So some rich guys decided uh, I want to make some more money and uh, the new frontier of extractivism, taking things from the planet, was this industry where they dive deep to the bottom of the ocean and collect rocks in the process, destroying a whole bunch of crap. It's not good for the planet and kind of just feeds this constant cycle of taking stuff from the planet. Yeah, that's deep sea money in a nutshell. But um, if we kind of unpack it a little bit more, uh, we've got these layers of, I guess, alleged corruption and international things like the United Nations not working for its intended purpose and outdated laws and all sorts of financial structures that are really weird and not fit for purpose and don't do what they should do to look after people. Um, so it's quite an interesting issue. What are they extracting? What are they trying to get that they think is valuable? Kind of everything. So uh, we're talking manganese, cobalt, a bunch of materials and metals that are used for, they like to highlight that it could be used for electric car batteries. Um, but I often remind people that it can also be used for ballistic missiles and a whole bunch of other not so nice things. I guess the U.S. defines it as critical minerals and metals. And is there anywhere to get this other than the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, so we mine it on land at the moment. It's all terrestrial mining. Um, so lots of lithium, manganese, cobalt uh, can be taken from the earth uh, terrestrially. So it's just another another place to get it, basically. And do you think that it's better for the environment to do it on land than sea, or is it all bad? Objectively, from what I've seen, you know, I, I guess I could say it's ever so slightly better to do it on land, but all mining has an impact on the planet. What we're saying is instead of allowing these guys to get rich who don't mine on land, it's not like we're taking away from mining on land to mine in the ocean. We're just adding overall more mining. So mm. like the impact overall just gets bigger. And what we're saying is actually, if we look at our landfills and our e-waste, that we can collect all of those minerals and metals in a different way. When did they start going down into the ocean to do this? Ages ago, actually. So um, the first kind of tests that I've been able to find were back in the 70s. But it was kind of like, they're there, we know they're there, but we don't actually have the technology to take it yet. Uh, so it stayed for a while. No one really did anything with it. And then there's just been a massive rush in the last few years with advancements in technology. So I want to circle back to what you said that there's different, better ways to get it. How, how does that work? So we're talking about a circular economy, right? So you have your iPhone, whatever, uh, and it reaches the end of its life. And instead of just putting it in a drawer or throwing it away, we have a dedicated place to put that piece of equipment where its metals can be extracted. We do it here in Aotearoa now in, in New Zealand, not super widespread, but it does happen and it can be upscaled. It's just about investing in that kind of system instead of taking additional virgin materials from the planet. And why do you think like now the deep sea mining is taking off because we finally have the technology to do it? Partly, uh, one, because we have the technology, but also uh, because one or two individuals, um, so I'm talking like the metals company, have pushed this concept of deep sea mining 
a lot further than it would have been if they didn't have a vested interest in making money from it. Name names, name names. <laughs> yeah, so the Metals Company is the company that's the furthest along. They are the big bad guy in the story. So they have a ship. They're out at sea uh, doing tests and collecting these nodules um, and actually mining to, to test. Uh, and Gerard Barron is the guy who is in charge of the company who owns the biggest stake individually um, and he has an, a history of seemingly inflating shares in companies and waiting until they're on the brink of success or failure and then just bouncing and taking all of his all of his money out and forming a new something somewhere else. So what are they actually doing? Because in my mind, I'm picturing like them going into into the ocean and just like smashing through coral, murdering all the fish and just like digging into the ground and pulling stuff out. Is that like what's I'm picturing like Fern Gully, but the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, um, they want you to think that they're gently collecting these nodules with like a really smart robot arm that just picks it up really gently and pops it in a bag. But in reality, we're talking massive mining machines that roll along and collect, the, uh, you know, the first layer of dirt and silt at the bottom of the ocean. Then they grind all of that up, grind the rocks up on a ship at the surface level and then take out everything they want and pump the rest of it back into the ocean, creating these massive clouds of sediment. Um, so, uh, you know, if, from a fish's perspective, you're talking just massive clouds of pollution and radioactivity and toxicity. Oh, my gosh. So what, what are the large scale, like what happens if we keep this going? So there is a massive climate impact uh, on the scale that they're talking about. Basically, carbon from the atmosphere is sequestered, it's stored in the bottom of the ocean. Um, it settles at the bottom and should be left there. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But by digging this up, we're actually reducing the ability of the ocean overall to sequester more carbon. And, you know, lots of people like to think, oh, we get our oxygen from trees. And that's absolutely true, but we get one breath from trees and forests and plants, and we get the second breath from the ocean. Um, so every second breath you take is actually from the ocean. Wow. wow. And so that's just going to ruin air quality, ruin just all, all the things that we're afraid of happening. It's just speeding up that process. Exactly. It's like, oh, this is our best friend in the fight against the climate crisis. Let's stab them in the back and make money off of it. Yeah, the listener who wrote in was talking about how like this is something that is an industry that's just getting off the ground and it's something that people can work towards more so stopping. Like, is that something that you're seeing where you're like, OK, if we can get more attention to this, then this is something that we have a chance of of going like rolling the clock back on. Yeah, one of the biggest comparisons I often make, and if you can picture this for a second, if we go back in time to before the internal combustion engine was invented, before we started drilling for oil, you know, we had completely different ways of working. We had systems that didn't rely on fossil fuels for us to live our daily lives. And that meant as individuals, we didn't have such a significant impact on the planet. and. We're at the brink of that industry now. So we have the opportunity to stop it here mm -hmm. or allow the system to go ahead and then become reliant on the this extraction. So what we're saying is if we stop it now, that gives us the opportunity to innovate 
and figure out new ways of working and invest in a more circular economy so that we know what we're using now will be able to be used in the future as well. And like before more people catch on and invest and then there's like 15 companies instead of two big companies, kind of, right? Like the snowball effect. Exactly. We know that, you know, there's this, there's one or two companies pushing ahead right now, but there are a multitude just waiting in the wings to, to see how this goes. So what's going to happen and can we invest in this? Oh, so so in terms of how it goes, you're talking about like if people if people have backlash, if there's like any kind of like regulations or pushback or anything like that on top of, oh, are we able to actually gather the stuff? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about needing political license and social license to be able to push ahead with a new concept and industry idea. And this is one that already needs social license from the world. It doesn't have much, if any, at the moment. Um, And I think one of the biggest things that people can do is be informed about the impacts and ensure that they don't get that social license, that you don't buy into their greenwashing. You mentioned that the UN isn't being effective in this area. Can you touch a little more on that? Yeah, I'd love to. So we like to think about the United Nations as being, um, you know, this big international organization and they follow international law and make international laws and that all of that's just happening in the background and it's all going well and we're making progress, if not, (laughs) you know, slow. But it's a real struggle. You know, foreign affairs policy for countries and negotiations and the sheer amount of history between any two nations in the world is really complex and difficult. The United Nations in this particular instance have a separate organ that they've pulled out called the International Seabed Authority. Mm. And the uh, ISA, as we call it, was mandated to protect the ocean and mitigate some of these impacts from extractive industries like fishing and mining. Uh, So it was established back in the 70s for that purpose. And basically today it's operating as a regulator for the industry. So it's actually allowing them to push ahead. And you've got the secretariat who sit there and are supposed to be kind of neutral parties and just facilitate discussions between the states. And the head of the ISA, uh, Michael Lodge, is... Uh, attending, um, you know, PR events for mining companies and unveiling new mining machines and announcing things left, right and centre for them. So the the power structure in that space is completely upended. What is his reason for doing that? He thinks that, that it's part of his role, but what we think is that actually he understands the amount of money that's in, is set to be made by this industry and, uh, you know, wants to help his friends. Is he, you think he's getting some kind of kickback or something? I mean, he's definitely getting a lot, of, a lot of kickback from the general public. I think people are slowly beginning to understand who he is and where he stands on the issue. But yeah, I think he's got a lot of pressure on him to deliver for people around him. Um, obviously, we can't be sure about that, but I dare say that people are, are putting pressure on him to allow the industry to go ahead. Ugh. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. I'm also like very curious, you know, as Americans, the talking about climate change is such a polarizing political 
conversation. People refuse to even believe that it's happening. Mm -hmm. What is it like kind of on, on your side of the world? Like, are people more open to like acknowledging this is a problem and are they more motivated to try to stop it? Or are you guys facing the same issues? Uh, we're facing similar issues to a different scale, I think. Um, so we're coming up on an election, the elections in, I think, just less than a month now for us. And the uh, opposition party has promised to bring back oil and gas exploration. Um, so if you, if you didn't already know, uh, our second to last prime minister banned oil, any new oil and gas exploration projects. So we basically acknowledged that we're in a climate emergency and took one significant step to do so. So we've still got an opposition party that wants to bring that kind of policy back in. But on the other hand, we've got quite a quite a, a, a dense amount of knowledge in the country and acceptance of the climate crisis being here and being present. We've suffered really extreme weather events in the last two years as well. I think one of our biggest problems here actually is that we're a farming nation. Um, you know, that's how we grew as a nation post-colonization. And if we look to our um, biggest polluter in the country, it's actually agriculture. But because we have so many farmers and they have such um, a, a significant amount of power here, it's really hard for us to accept that fact, um, that actually cows do contribute to the climate crisis and that we need to do our part by reducing our herd. But that's a hard sell, you're saying, because uh, most of New Zealand is farmers? Yeah, a really significant amount. So how do you sell that to them? I, I think it's just about being true to the facts, right? The fact is that agriculture is our biggest polluter, that our, our dairy size is just too big. Mm. We have one of the highest emissions per capita in the world, if, if you look at it in, in that way. One of the reasons that we have that is because we've got this single commodity. So, uh, you know, New Zealand sells uh, very cheap dried milk powder um, to countries like China. And that actually means that farmers are living really hard, having a really tough time at the moment, just surviving. And that's because we operate in the system instead, instead of selling, you know, a high value commodity like organic fresh milk, you know, that would would mean we could lower the herd sizes, stop buying synthetic nitrogen fertilizers and uh, stop polluting our waterways and reducing our emissions all at once. Like it just makes sense. Um, but it's really hard to sell that to farmers who are already doing it tough and know that mm -hmm. that then means reducing their herd size by about half and investing in new technologies as well. Um, so we try and support them to understand the impact, but also show them the ways to, to move forward. What's the PR campaign for against deep sea mining? Like, how do we, because like I hadn't heard of it until this listener wrote in. How, how do we get people to understand that this is like a new thing that's happening and that it doesn't have to happen and that there's something we could do? Because I feel like when there's a lot of money involved, one, you feel helpless. And two, like Allison was talking about in the US, it's very much like, well, we don't even want to say that climate change is happening or you know, it, I always think, I know this is so basic, but I always think back on, you know, stuff about any sort of film that's about colonization. It's always like, well, you think that you, you own the earth, you know, like I think there's an entitlement, right? Where we're like, well, of course, like we will just go in and we'll colonize the ocean. <laughs> like, how do you get into people's minds? 
Yeah, that's um, probably like the biggest question in campaigning, right? right? <laughs> it's how do we reach people and how do we uh, talk about an issue? I've always just had a real vibe about being real with people. It's we're not trying to sell you a story or um, you know make up facts. Like um, we base everything we do in science. The first year and a half of me taking on this work was just sitting in research papers every day <laughs> trying mm. to figure out what this issue was because there wasn't a page on Google I could go to to be like, hey, what is deep sea mining? <laughs> wow. So, you know, you really had to dive deep to figure out what the issue was and understand the power structures that exist. So what we're doing, I think, as an organization is breaking that down so that we can share information with people in a simplified way uh, so that they can understand the issue in bite-sized chunks. So one of the best ways, I think, to for, for people to wrap their heads around it is to follow organizations like Greenpeace, the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, um, WWF, who are all doing really amazing work to, to, to share the story of deep sea mining and what it is in a way that you can absorb around your daily life. But I think there's a lot of power in just sharing that story with others and not like, hey, I'll share this post on Facebook, but rather, actually, I have a best friend that I really care about and who I know I can talk to. So I'm going to go and raise this issue with them. That actually starts a conversation and brings people together while um, expanding our knowledge, right? So that's always the kind of way that I encourage people to talk about an issue. Do the petitions work, like the ones that are linked on Greenpeace? Petitions are a really interesting thing, right? Um, they are almost a catalyst for discussing an issue. And the more significant a petition's size, the more significant the weight you have around that discussion. So um, that's that's one way to look at it. And that just means, you know, the more you sign petitions, the more weight you give the organizations to go out and say, hey, 200,000 people support this mm -hmm. issue. You need to listen to us when they're talking to, to decision makers. Uh, but we're really lucky here in Aotearoa where we have a system which allows us to directly petition the government. So I delivered a petition asking our government to ban seabed mining, I think mid-2021. And just before the election, unfortunately, they didn't finish it. But uh, one part of the government basically took submissions and voices and opinions of people all around the country to say, hey, um, let's put together a report, which will basically say, hey, seabed mining's really bad, or it's not so bad and deliver that to the government to say, hey, we think you should take this piece of action. And can you talk about like how this is sort of tied to colonialism, even though we don't like necessarily think of the sea as its own country or a place that can be colonized? Yeah, well, I think if we go back to the roots of colonialism, it was about going into a country, into a place that you don't have distinct ancestral ties to and uh, forming a base, taking over people to some extent, more so other in some places than others. Um, and, uh, you know, it can be through legal avenues. It can be through violence. Uh, you know, there are multiple different ways of doing it. Um, but I think one of the biggest things for people to understand that for Oceania, for Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia, Aotearoa in Australia, we don't see ourselves as small island nations. The UN defines many of the Pacific Islands as small island developing states, and we 
really don't like that term. Instead, we think of ourselves as really significant large ocean states. You know, we're wayfinders, we're voyagers, uh, and we spend quite a significant amount of time out at sea. Uh, you know, we rely on fishing to survive, for example. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is that our sacred ocean that we have such a really deep-rooted connection to is being exploited um, and is, is being exploited by companies who only wish to make profit. They don't give a hoot about the protection of the ocean. They can say any old thing they like, but really what they're trying to do is make money at the end of the day. Uh, so once again, it's happening. People from the other side of the earth are coming in to our part of the ocean and taking from it to feed their agenda. So it is just like going in because the, the environmental impact is once once a once the boat leaves, what's what's gone on in the ocean? Like what are they leaving? What sort of wreckage are they leaving? It's an interesting one because it kind of depends and the other side of the coin is that we we're not sure the extent yet, yeah. of it because it's not happening yet, right? But what we do know is that the sediment plume, so the massive clouds of toxicity and pollution that are left over afterwards. Um, can travel for hundreds of kilometers. And oh, wow. some models predict that they last, you know, a year to five years. And that's kind of the ones they like to use um, in planning. But, you know, we've seen other models that scientists have more um, faith in that show that these sediment plumes will last for 30, 40, 50 plus years. Uh, so we're talking extreme long lasting effects. Uh, on the ocean being a significant potential for this industry. So the the fish are being exposed to pollution and like if people go into the ocean, it makes it less safe or less like people able to swim or like what, you know what I mean? Yeah. So one of the um, most recent studies that was released around deep sea mining actually showed that when you grind up the polymetallic nodules and release the sediment back into the ocean, that actually you're unlocking radioactive and toxic chemicals from within those rocks. Fun. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, everyone's kind of talking at the moment about Fukushima and, um, you know, pumping formerly uh, radioactive, potentially still. Um, problematic water into the Pacific Ocean. And on the flip side here, we're talking about adding radioactivity and toxicity to the ocean at, you know, massive scales. So the, the zone that they want to mine in is the width of the continental United States. So it's not a small part of the ocean either. That's cool. I love that we're like, you know what, let's create radioactivity in the ocean just for fun, <laughs> just for fun and profit. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. Tatala T2. Just between us.